G'day humans, on the show this week, a feminist, badass, culture critic, par excellence, extraordinaire, Kat Rosenfield, she's a freelance pop culture writer, political writer, uh, and author, she's written the books Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone, and Inland, the first of those books was nominated for an Edgar Award, I don't know what an Edgar Award is, do you know what an Edgar Award is? I would humbly suggest that the uh, the board at the Edgars consider renaming the Edgar Award because it's probably quite prestigious. I mean, she wouldn't include it in her bio if it wasn't quite prestigious. But when you say to someone, oh, I'm, I've been nominated for an Edgar, it just doesn't have the gravitas or the ring that I think a prestigious award deserves. Nonetheless, who am I to tell the board of the Edgars how they should run their own award ceremony? Uh, Kat is a delightful person to follow on Twitter. Delightful person to read in places like Tablet Magazine and Wired and Vulture, Entertainment Weekly, Playboy. Not that I've read her in Playboy. I haven't. Actually, I have read it because I only read it for the articles. Uh, Boom Tish. She's been published in Us Weekly. Uh, She basically, her remit has wandered from cultural criticism to what it means to be a woman in the 21st century to cancel culture and those sorts of things and this is a suitably aptly meandering conversation that she has with me where we touch on all of those things i won't preface it too much but i do hope you enjoy and follow and read the one and only cat rosenfield leafing through your old articles and I think I fell in love with you with the article called The Birth of the Cool Guy a couple of years ago about performative feminism amongst dude bros. Oh gosh yeah it's been it's been a while since I wrote that piece but it's it's close to my heart still Um, I don't think that the phenomenon I observed has ceased to be a thing. Um, Cool guys these these men who sort of adopt this performative feminism and will turn up in the mentions of any woman who has like a viral feminist tweet being like I'm sorry men are such trash I'm so sorry we're like this. I mean, they're ultimately they're not hot. They're uh, they're not really appealing to women, but that's sort of not what they're there for. Um, I spoke for the for the piece. Um, I spoke to somebody who had once dated one of these guys, and um, the the thing that she told me that I thought was really interesting was that she saw him as not sexy, but maybe safe because he um, he seemed like he was so with it. Right. You know, he seemed like he he got it. She wouldn't have to explain feminism to him. And he would you know, and he wouldn't mistreat her the way like, a you know, a more traditionally jock bro kind of guy might because he was such an avowed feminist. And then he turned out to be actually garbage in the same way as like any other guy who just is garbage. I don't know. I have I have a series of of thoughts about men like this. I mean, I think that they are. I mean, just put some more flesh on the bones of who this person is. So people who are on Twitter will know this person because, as you said, they always parachute into any time anyone has, any woman has a complaint about misogyny, uh, whether justified or unjustified, they will be the first to be posting about what how terrible men are. And Australia has, in the past 12 months, had a 
a real reckoning with um, political harassment in the capital and in, in Parliament House, and there have been resignations and outrages and really awful stories of young female staffers being uh, subjected to sexual harassment and innuendo and a- abuse and occasionally sexual violence. And so this kind of hothouse atmosphere has loomed really large in the Australian consciousness. But that's precisely why I think it needs to be taken seriously rather than performatively uh, and, mm-hmm. like, responded to with cool heads and stern sort of judicious at- approaches rather than this this kind of performative flailing... Uh, like symbiosis that you get between self-flagellating dude bros who just want to show everybody what great feminists they are and the wing of sort of extreme feminism that holds that all men are like this and all men behave like this and this is an overwhelming problem of all men rather than being some kind of perverted expression of toxic masculinity that erupts within certain environments from certain individuals. So, yeah, other than Twitter, who is this guy? Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the um, men who are accused of of sexual harassment or sexual assault, um, because the cool guy really functions to sort of distance himself from these people, even as, you know, it's, it's, there's a sort of implied, not me, though, because I get it, you know, I'm, I'm a feminist. Mm. Um, And at the same time as he's saying, yes, all men, like all men are trash. And I'm a yes. man, but because I can say that, my recognition of my own awfulness is itself an insulation against the awful, the allegation of awfulness. Yeah, I mean, there is this implied, but not me, not really. And there's also this interesting thing that happens when somebody who is one of these cool guy types is accused himself of having made a woman uncomfortable because there's this this thing that happens and um, I think I, I cited the example of James Franco in the piece where he basically will say, I think it's so important for women to speak out against against sexual harassment and sexual assault that I won't deny these charges. I won't call this woman a liar. And in doing so, he implicitly calls her a liar. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. This is her moment to live in her mistaken truth, not my moment to call that truth mistaken. So I won't. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you think feminism's doing? I think I think contemporary feminism has leaned awfully hard in a way that I still find surprising into the idea that women need to be not empowered but protected, um, including protected from the consequences of making normal adult decisions, which sometimes end in regret. And um, that's obviously something that applies to how we talk about women having sex. But it's, you know, it's kind of an across the board thing as it's become increasingly trendy to claim to be victimized by any bad experience, any traumatic, or, or you say it's traumatic, you know, the, I mean, the bar for trauma has been set rather low at this point. Um, but, you know, you had a, an unpleasant work environment where you weren't actually sexually harassed, but you just didn't feel valued. This is seen as traumatic. Um, you know, we accuse people of gaslighting us, um, people, even people we have no relationship with. It's just become like a, a synonym for disagreement even though it has this incredibly laden history as a word, you know, that implies like domestic abuse and, and psychological abuse. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I would love to get back to a, a, 
brand of feminism that really focuses more on women's empowerment and less on, um, you know, this desire to sort of protect them from the world as though they're too fragile to handle the world. And that's basically where I stand on feminism mm. right now. Who's doing the pushing of which idea at the moment? Because it, what you're saying is it sounds like a kind of a Puritan thing. Like I, you traditionally, my parents' generation would have associated claims about women not having agency and not enjoying sex and needing to be protected with conservatives, maybe even religious conservatives. But that's not the mm-hmm. cleavage, the cultural cleavage now. No, it's sort of been appropriated by um, people who who think of themselves as quite progressive. And that's a strange thing. I was raised by a a very fierce second wave feminist um, who, you know, who taught me to think of myself as an autonomous person, as, you know, responsible for my choices and to assert myself. Um, And so there's this interesting thing happening now where not only are women presumed to be sort of unable to handle the normal responsibilities and the the normal emotional fallout that comes from being in the world and sometimes making missteps, but the idea of asserting yourself has become almost taboo because, you know, the woman who asserts herself, who makes a fuss, like, who's, who is that? She's a Karen. And nobody wants to be a Karen. That's interesting. Aren't there types of asserting? I think... Slapping down the dude who says the sexist thing in the moment in the workplace verbally is badass, but going to HR is being a Karen. Huh. That's that's the way I would have interpreted it. I don't think Karens are strong women who put bigoted people in their place. I I regard the usage of Karen culturally as being about people who are extremely persnickety and obsessed with minor rule infringements or like you know the fine print of exactly what they didn't get or their their hall monitors they're tracy flick from the movie election who are like (laughs) highly highly ambitious and self-entitled and will trample over anyone to enforce what they regard as being the the correct response to a particular situation rather than self-empowered people who are asserting their legitimate place in in a space. I don't know. I don't think that people who, who use the term at this point are really uh, drawing such bright lines between good assertiveness and bad assertiveness. And what I'm thinking of right now is... Uh, Let's see. I'm thinking of I think of a woman who uh, was fired from her job as a as a literary agent, and this was last year, in sort of the heat of uh, the the protest movement that was happening here in the states, um, because people were looting and I think attempting to set a gas station down the street from her on fire, and uh, she called the police. And this was um, this was Karen behavior. This was unacceptable. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, that's also interesting because there's a, a you, and you've written about this as well. I was just going back through some of your, your articles about the way that, the different way that we sort of treat youth and youthful mistakes that we've got, that we live in this weird era where people who, for example, during the last summer of protests in the United States would be in their late 20s or early 30s and they're professionals and they're setting gas stations on fire, throwing Molotov cocktails at police cars and so on, and then kind of being exonerated because they were sort of on the right side of history, so to speak, and they were just youthful expressions of commitment 
to causes that deserve their solidarity. But then at the same time, you've got a kind of the same people who are exonerating them are all for cancelling people who, when they were 12 years old, said the N-word in a TikTok video four years ago. (laughs) Yeah, it's wild. I feel like women occupy this strange place where we're sort of like Schrodinger's victim, where, you know, (laughs) it depends on on the direction out of, like, you know, are you, you know, who are you aggressing against or who is aggressing against you? And depending on everyone's various identity categories, um, you could be, like, the you know, the victim with the genuine grievance and the one who was mistreated and the one who deserves sympathy, or you could be the aggressor. Um, and, you know, in many cases, it need not be, there need not be any differences um, in the, the circumstances of like what you yourself have done. It just depends on the identity of the person that you're interacting with. What were you making of the protests as they unfolded last summer? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, at the time, I was mostly worried that people were going to all get infected with COVID and they were going to become super spreading <laughs> events. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was, to, to me, the most memorable thing about that was what, uh, I think in hindsight, catastrophic loss of trust it resulted in when it came to our public health officials who were, you know, very actively condemning other protest movements um, and also any gathering, you know, any large gathering, including large gatherings that took place outside. Um, But they, you know, not only could not bring themselves to say, this is dangerous, these, you know, these mass protests are dangerous. Um, But they came out and I think they said something, there was this open letter where a bunch of people signed it and they said, like, protesting racism is more important um, because racism is a public health concern too. And I think there are, you know, there are ways in which that can be a true statement, but it also struck a lot of people, especially those of us who had like lost family members and could not bury them and could not have funerals. Um, It just seemed a little bit absurd. Yeah, I remember that statement. I remember them saying that like the 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 way that white supremacy crushes the bodies of people of colour, I mean, I, that may not have been quite that literate, but uh, but that's the way that I interpreted it, was worse than the risk of a raging viral pandemic. Uh, and, like, that might be true. It might be true that the, that the big picture of racism kills more people than COVID. I don't know how you'd quantify that. But even if that were true, like, the causal link between having this big rambunctious crowded protest right now and having fewer deaths as a result of structural racism you'd need to show me better data about that link than than we've we've got in order to actually tally up some utilitarian body count that put the (laughs) the the risk of, of infection from a pandemic at less than the number of people who would the number of people of color who would otherwise be killed if we don't stage this big rally right now on this particular day yeah yeah you know it it seemed like an attempt to make concrete something that was just not quantifiable at a time when there was you know something very quantifiable and very concrete going on which was an airborne virus and you know i think in hindsight like we now know that it didn't really spread out of doors. And so, you know, we, we got lucky in that sense, but it's, yeah, it was, it was just, it was tough to watch. I think a lot of people took note of that and sort of adjusted their opinions of um, the people who were 
directing traffic, um, you know, when it came to like the the public health response accordingly. It certainly hasn't helped people's trust in yeah in health advice. What what do you attribute it to? I mean, I understand that a medical professional doesn't want to be on the wrong side of history and doesn't want to seem like they're part of an organ of state oppression of people of colour by saying, uh, really, you shouldn't come out and protest uh, police violence against against African-Americans. But is that it? Is that all it is? I mean, I'm just wondering, like, are the incentives all aligned? Is it a, is it a problem of the incentives being misaligned for people in positions of power so that the penalty for them seeming to be... Well, I guess racist is so high that they have to avoid any suggestion of that or any threat of a suggestion of that at all cost, even if it means betraying their Hippocratic oath. It's uh, a good question. I tend to think that what was actually happening there is that the people who were, you know, on board with the protests either knew or at least could make an educated guess that they weren't actually going to result in, um, you know, a great deal of spread. We we did have a certain amount of information by then about how the virus spread. And when you talk about incentives, I think that on the one hand, there were moments in which it was, a lot of moments, in which it was um, desirable to be as pessimistic as possible to kind of call calamity all the time and say like, you know, you, you, you sat next to your friend on a park bench, you're killing grandma, you Mm. know, because the, Mm. the one thing about the pandemic was that anybody who had an impulse to kind of scold and punish and police people found an outlet for that and found it very satisfying and was not going to give that up when, you know, when they felt like they had free reign to do it. Um, but then, you know, when it came to something that they approved of morally, like these protests, which, you know, I, I agree were morally important, if ill-timed, um, I think that, you know, the the other incentives sort of prevailed, you know, to, to be more measured about, you know, assessing the risks and to say, well, you know, this seems like this seems tolerable. It's probably fine. Um, You know, you saw a lot of people saying, but they're outside and they're wearing masks. Um, And, you know, that was true. And the outside thing probably, you know, made a, a lot of difference there. It's just, you know, I think what's remarkable is how that was not considered compelling um, you know, when it was another kind of gathering where, you know, then the impulse to scold and police won out because it was the wrong kind of people who were trying to get together. What were those kinds of gatherings? <laughs> I mean, basically anything that wasn't an anti-racist <laughs> protest. Um, like were there, I mean, I'm trying to remember because I wasn't, maybe I, I mean, I wasn't in the country, so in the state, so I wasn't paying incredibly close attention to it but were there were there like trumpy rallies that were being told to shut down for coronavirus reasons yeah i mean there were some well there were protests against the lockdowns here in the states um that right yeah that's right yes i'm not sure when and where those took place they might have been more towards the beginning and then you know there would be um there was like a motorcycle rally there were trump rallies where people were walking around unmasked um 
there were but there, I mean, there was also just like it was like anything anything that was perceived as as not for a good cause um mm. if people were just having fun like i still remember that there was this um I mean, the playgrounds were all were all taped up, mm. you know, and there was this moment where I think it was, you know, it had gotten to be summertime. It was nice, finally, on the East Coast. And I believe it was Bill de Blasio in New York City who told New Yorkers that if they tried to go to the beach, they would be pulled out of the water by the cops. <laughs> I want to see that. I want to see some dumpling of a Jersey cop trying to struggle with uh, some Jersey, <laughs> Jersey boy, uh, some tattered up Jersey boy in the water trying to re- wrestle him to the ground in the sand. Uh, yeah, I also remember, Kat, there was like there were images on Twitter of in California bulldozers coming into skate parks on the beach and bulldozing the, and pouring like just pushing sand on all over the skate parks. Like it's a skate park. It's not very densely populated. You know, it's just skater bros skating around. There are only a few of them. They're out in the open and they were literally bulldozing sand onto it. And I said at the time on Twitter, and I was a very early, like screaming from the rooftops about the pandemic. Um, You know, I, I was taking it extremely seriously, but I was like, this is not, the way and then people on twitter were like well if they're not going to stop endangering other people then they have to be forced to and i'm like but what is a sustainable approach here because you're only going to piss off 95 percent of people like there aren't very many people who are going to look at a state funded bulldozer pushing sand in front of like teenagers who are just trying to get out of the house and get some exercise and ruining their day and go this is excellent this is precisely the kind of state that we want to live in this is the perfect balance between authoritarianism and freedom like obviously <laughs> that's going to trigger a libertarian backlash especially in a place like the US where those sentiments run run so deep maybe not so much in Australia where i think we're a bit more obedient but definitely in the states and i think we've seen that it's an, it's interesting to imagine what the parallel uh, sliding doors alternate um, history is in the states where there was a more consistent, more reasoned, more science-based approach to lockdowns uh, and people didn't feel like they were just being fucked around for no reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think that the one thing the pandemic revealed is that a lot of Americans don't care that much about liberty, or at least are very happy to give up their own if it means that they get to police other people's lives. Um, <laughs> that's very satisfying, too. I am, you know, I am distressed to say, like, many more people in this country than I thought. Apparently, that's like a a real source of joy to them. Um, mm. So, yeah, that was a little dispiriting. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I wonder, does, is that a social media um, artifact, though? Like, would that be happening if it weren't for people finger-wagging on social media? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there is a performative aspect to it, but I'm just thinking of things like this guy, this lawyer, who went to the beach dressed as the Grim Reaper, you know, mm. Um, mm. to shame people for going to the beach in Florida. And that was an insane thing to do. There was no danger there. And yet, you know, not only did he get like a lot of positive feedback from people who were like, what you're doing is so important. You're saving lives. Um, but he got an enormous amount of media coverage, like traditional media coverage. He was on cable news, you know, talking about how like, brave and good he was so i'm not sure that it's 
I'm sure social media doesn't help, but I think there's also just kind of a basic human instinct at play there. Yeah. And people just aren't very good at understanding nuance or like, let alone algorithmic exponential statistics and things like that. Like I, I remember quite early on, there was also a, a, shot, a photo going around. I guess it was when the weather started getting nice. So it was probably in May or June of last, of, you know, the, after the couple of months after the pandemic had begun and everyone was still locked down. And there was a pool party that went viral with everybody very, very, very closely crammed together in pools and buying beer. Nobody was masked. And yes, it was outside, but as you mentioned earlier, we didn't know at that stage that it was so hard to catch when you're out outdoors. And so I had tweeted something saying, like, this is wildly reckless, this is irresponsible or whatever. I'd chimed in. And uh, then a whole bunch of my followers wanted to agree with me in the most stupid and extreme finger-wagging nanny state way possible. So, like, someone took the photo of all these people and wrote the word died in three weeks and put an arrow to one of them and, like, dead and put an arrow to another one and then, like, <laughs> <laughs> killed her, killed his grandmother and put to another one and, like, like as if the whole pool was going to die. And I was like, guys... You're not helping. The prob- the reason why I don't think it's advisable to have huge pool parties in the middle of a pandemic is not because everyone there is going to end up dead. It's because you're trying to control and minimise the spread so that the pandemic isn't quite as widespread and isn't infecting quite as many old people and people whose immune systems can't cope. Most of these young people, even if they all caught it, would survive and would be fine. <laughs> like, we're not... Nobody... You're not convincing anybody by putting a big skull and crossbones over the face of every single person uh, who's, <laughs> who's behaving inappropriately or irresponsibly. You know what's interesting about that photo is um, that it was taken at Lake of the Ozarks, which is in a part of the U.S. that um, it's, it's like in in like Missouri and I think parts of Arkansas. It's, Can so it's I just south. note, by the way, how incredibly too online we must be that from that single anecdote, you know the exact photo. Like what a, what a flattened world we now live in on social media you know, that funny. I can cite that and you know exactly what it is. <laughs> I was well, in I Australia. I think it's because it was, it was so, you know, people, people were so delighted to dunk on it because there was this perception that everybody who, you know, it's, this was the South. So everybody in this photo was probably a Trump supporter and hence they probably deserve to die you know right. was i think sort of the reigning sentiment but the thing the reason that i remember that is because it um not just because it it sort of uh catalyzed this very i think elitist reaction amongst a lot of the people who kind of inhabit twitter but because it was referred to in the press as a super spreader event like just wildly without without evidence like at the time that it happened and then nobody caught COVID there and you know and nobody ever retracted that and I thought that was really interesting that was telling to me about sort of how the discourse was being driven I guess yeah that's interesting that they've got these ideological blinders and they just they use what are actually epidemiological terms to just kind of as a way of throwing it around and reinforcing their own prejudice uh, you recently tweeted something that Lara Bazelon had written a thread about changes to how sexual harassment and rape complaints are conducted on campus. This is something that has also flared up occasionally in Australia with some 
some disagreements about exactly how widespread um, sexual assault at universities is and among young people and how those things should be handled. But what's different is that here they're still matters for the police. They're not matters for the internal university campus cops or whatever. Can you explain how the American system works and what's wrong with it? Can I, can I swear on your podcast? <laughs> yeah, you can. This is a shit show, and it dates back 10 years at this point um, to, in 2011, the Obama administration issued this Dear Colleague letter from the Office of Civil Rights, alerting college campuses that they needed to update their sexual assault and sexual harassment policies um, to be basically more victim-centered um, more and more hostile to the accused, or they would risk losing fun- federal funding. So, and you know, this was this was all wrapped up in Title IX, which is the um, the statute that prevents uh, sex-based discrimination on college campuses. So, this was all triggered by um, the there was this sort of like. I, I guess there's really no better word for, for it than a, like a moral panic around rape on campus that stemmed in large part from this study conducted by a man named David Lizak, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, where he found that something like one in four women, you know, would be raped um, at college, you know, in the it was it was you know one of these terrifying statistics that everybody was like oh my god we must do something about this and this is a statistic um, that we still we still regard as being a fact i mean even in australia i hear people talk about how you know one in four or one in five young women are i don't know if they say raped but sexually assaulted yeah you know it's it's such a mess um the statistic is really I mean, the, the study that produced it is incredibly unreliable. There's um, Emily Yaffe has written at length about why this study is so bad, and I, I really recommend her work on it. I think it's at um, I think it's at Slate where she did this debunking. Emily is fantastic. Also, Lara Bazelon, who I just mentioned, is fantastic, and it should be mentioned in case people think that these are like kind of right wingers or like these are you know self hating women or something. These are bona fide feminist like journalists. Yes, I mean, all of us who are who are having this conversation, um, you know, we're all, I think, on the left, we're all liberals. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you are genuinely liberal, then, you know, the the impact on due process of this stuff is truly horrifying and truly despicable. So um, I'm going to try to, you know, to fast forward, basically, you know, in in reaction to this bullshit statistic, you know, suggesting that like there was a huge epidemic of rape on college campuses. And Kat, the sorry, Obama no, right. let me just pause there. The, the the statistic is bullshit. Why was it conflating basically a whole bunch of different uh, sort of sexually unbecoming behaviors or overtures from guys as as being the same as rape? How, like how did why is the statistic bullshit? Okay, so the study by Lizak is specifically like the methodology was incredibly flawed. Um, I'm I don't have access to all of this, so I'm just trying to recall what was wrong with it. Um, but what I remember is that he was doing the study on a commuter campus, which is not what most you know American four-year universities are. People stay in dorms, so that was already a different. And then I believe what he did was he. He surveyed men 
about whether they had ever committed an assault. And then he extrapolated, like, he just, like, multiplied by four, you know, that if a guy had said that he committed one assault in a given year, that he probably committed one every year. Um, it was, you know, it there, some some of the stuff that he did, some of the math that he did was just indefensibly bonkers. Um, and I, I definitely encourage people to read up on the many, many weirdnesses surrounding this study. Um, the other thing is that, yeah, you know, they did, they, they have adopted in general this very overbroad notion of what constitutes sexual assault or sexual harassment. So on the one end, you have actual violent rape. And on the other hand, you have, you know, a man flirted with me um, or a man asked me out and I said no, but I felt weird about the fact that I had to say no and I felt harassed and I felt uncomfortable. Um, so it's just incredibly hard to know really what's happening. Um, but I mean, if you just kind of like take a step back and look at it with some common sense, it stands to reason that, you know, women on college campuses who are generally a relatively privileged set, you know, they, they tend to come from um, privileged backgrounds, they tend to be educated, their parents tend to be educated, you know, they're not going to be suffering sexual violence at a rate that's like some drastic amount, you know, two or three or four times greater than women who live in poverty, women who are much more vulnerable, um, to, you know, to violence of all kinds. And right. I mean, you would just never send your daughter to university if, if yeah. that was the, if it was going to dramatically, you know, by, you know, by several, by a factor of two or threefold increase her risk of getting raped, you'd just rather she didn't go. Yeah. I mean, if anybody genuinely thought that there was a one in four chance that their daughter was going to be raped at college, they wouldn't actually send their kids there. It's it's just, you know, it kind of gives the lie to the whole thing. Um, but the result of this panic has been to adopt, um, for one thing, this very overbroad, um, you know, you've got, you've got deans at colleges trying to litigate interactions that you know, there's just really no reason why college administrators should be involved in like college administrators should not be stepping in to try to like prevent kids. I mean, and they're not even kids, they're adults, they're legal adults from <laughs> flirting with each other um, or from like kissing each other or trying to kiss each other, you know, and 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 getting rebuffed when it turns out that they read the signals wrong um, that, you know, they shouldn't be stepping into police consensual sex, um, you know, or, or ugly breakups between, you know, between two adults. And this is the thing that's resulted from these very aggressive overhauls of um, the the sexual assault and, and Title IX regulations on campus where administrators are terrified of losing funding. And so they've installed these, you know, really unfair processes that, you know, it's like a, a kangaroo court, basically, where um, the accused, and it's almost always a man, of course, is, you know, frequently, uh, like, not expelled, but told to leave campus, um, the moment an accusation is made is not necessarily allowed to know what the accusation is, or who made it, is not allowed to see the, you know, the charges against them, or just to, to review the files. Um, there's there's just so much bad stuff happening 
with regard to this. Um, and there's been a lot of really unfair outcomes that, again, I mean, some of the some of the individual stories about this stuff will just curl your hair. Um, and I, you know, I recommend that people read Emily Yaffe's coverage of it. Uh, just to clarify for people, if you do want to Google it, Yoffe is Y-O-F-F-E, Emily Yoffe, and I've just looked at the, the two main pieces. There's one in Slate from 2014 called The College Rape Overcorrection. Sexual assault on campus is a serious problem, but efforts to protect women from a putative epidemic of violence have led to misguided policies that infringe on the civil rights of men. And another one from 2017 in The Atlantic uh, entitled The Uncomfortable Truth About Campus Rape Policy. But that slight one is probably the, the, uh, the original one. You mentioned, Kat, that this is often men who are getting accused. But actually, the, the piece that I saw because you retweeted it from Lara Bazelon is about a, a woman who Lara, who's a lawyer, represents, uh, a Jane Doe. And she was falsely accused of masturbating in class tweets Lara, during a mandatory interpretive dance exercise. She herself is a rape survivor, and Lara says that the allegations were made by malicious classmates. They were absurd on their face. They could have been dispelled with a one-day investigation, but instead the university, without giving this girl any process, prevented her from coming to class for 14 months. They effectively expelled her on the basis of a he-said-she-said with no trial. What amazes me as a non-American is... Why is this stuff getting adjudicated by the university? Like, if like, let's take the example of a rape. What, it, like, are people getting away with? Is the punishment for rape on campus just that you get expelled? Like, why don't they just get the police involved and then you face a criminal trial? Yeah, that's a mess. Um, and I, I think there's a few different things going on, but one of the things, unfortunately, is a pervasive sense amongst young women and it's it's not really based in reality that there's no point in going to the police that the police will just re-traumatize you if you've been raped because they won't take you seriously and they'll imply that you were asking for it and they won't bother to investigate and and so on and so forth um <clears throat> a lot of this you know, uh, the stuff that's getting litigated on college campuses, of course, is is not rape. It's sex that, you know, meets the criteria for consensual by any, you know, legal stretch. Um, but, you know, but they still feel bad about it. And um, and there's this sense that, like, well, I feel bad. I shouldn't have to feel bad. Um, you know, somebody should have to answer for this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's a combination of things. And, I mean, of course, going to the police is... It's not easy. Um, it's not simple, and you're not guaranteed a, a smooth and relatively speedy outcome that's favorable to you that results in the person that you're aggrieved against being sort of removed from from campus and removed from contact with you. Um, whereas campuses will, you know, they do that. They just uh, they just kick the person off campus so that you don't have to see them. I mean, so there there are incentives to not go to the police and to, to go through this process instead. It sort of strikes me as the worst of both worlds, though, because, I mean, and I completely accept that historically police departments have probably been really tin-eared and clueless when it comes to how to handle 
uh, rape allegations when it's just a, a he said she said situation, and they probably were really insensitive towards victims who needed who deserved to be believed more than they they were. But that doesn't mean that you circumvent the justice system. It means that you fix the justice system, ideally, right? I mean, you, you, like if if this was any other class of crime, if someone were, if someone was systematically or even just on a one off stole you know, uh, a prized, very valuable, I don't know, trophy, athletic trophy from another student, like, would that get adjudicated inside the the campus? I mean, if someone, if someone was violent in a non-sexual way and, you know, stabbed another student, would you go, well, the police are terrible about prosecuting stabbings. We're just not going to involve criminal law enforcement at all. We're just going to sort it out in here and we'll just suspend him without a trial on the basis of the the victim's claim that what happened was true. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, obviously that, you know, that wouldn't happen specific, you know, especially with violent crime. With theft, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know if, if, I mean, there might be an additional campus investigation, but, you know, certainly you could go to the police with that. Um, I think that... So, you know, it's it's true that, like, the police have historically, in, in many cases, really, really messed up um, rape investigations or, you know, or not believed women who said something had happened to them when something had. Um, there are some truly horrifying stories, including one that I think was covered by Liz Brunig when she was still working in Texas um, about a serial rapist who was, like, sneaking into women's homes at night and assaulting them and the first person who reported him um was just told that she was making it up it was just egregious and you know it's the kind of thing that should never happen um i think that there's maybe a little bit of an overcorrection happening now where there's a sense that you know rape victims, women particularly, um, you know, who've, who've suffered, and I mean, it's not even necessarily rape, it could just be, you know, sexual assault or, you know, an, an, an unwelcome comment or whatever, but that they've been traumatized enough um, that they deserve a better system than the criminal justice system, which is because, you know, it's made to be as fair as possible to the accused is not especially fun to go through if you've been a victim. You are going to be asked a lot of intrusive questions. You are going to have to, you know, go back over and over to the thing that happened to you. It's going to take a really long time. Um, and, you know, there's a good chance, again, because our system is set up to, you know, to make it as hard as possible to convict innocent people of crimes, um, there's a good chance that the person who hurt you is not going to end up being necessarily prosecuted, or if he is, that he's not going to be convicted. So it's not it's not set up to be satisfying to victims. The mm. college system is set up to be presently, especially satisfying to victims and that can be good in some ways but it can also attract people who you know who are feeling vengeful who you know who want the satisfaction of seeing consequences extracted from the person that they feel aggrieved against but without having to really experience much in the way of a cost themselves Mm. it's interesting i mean it's so hard isn't it to know where do you process ends and because it not everything should have the standard the standard of proof of a courtroom like that this is something that australia has grappled with 
as well this year where the Attorney General had to resign because of historical uh, rape allegations against him uh, from when he was a teenager and there were allegations of a certain amount of impropriety uh, in his office and those allegations had sort of started swirling around before this bombshell landed and the country basically split in two with one half of the country saying uh, good riddance, he should have to resign uh, because believe all women and the other half of the country saying whatever happened to due process until he's convicted in a court of law there's nothing to see here and that just struck me as deeply unsatisfying on both sides because there might be something to see there just because there's not enough evidence to prosecute a 30 year old allegation on behalf of the criminal justice system and the police does not mean that you shouldn't raise your eyebrows and, like, interrogate the character of a person who holds one of the highest offices in the land who is trailing these allegations behind him. And it, it does worry me that there isn't a grey zone here that anyone is terribly comfortable at inhabiting. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult. The thing about due process that, you know, I always, I always come back to is, you know, it can be very inconvenient if you are the victim. But if you are ever accused of a crime or if somebody you love is accused of a crime, you're going to want that. Like, you're going to want due process. Even if you did it, you're going to want due process. You know, you're going to want not only the chance to respond to the allegations against you, but to argue for an appropriate level of punishment. And, you know, every time we jettison due process because it's not satisfying because it's frustrating and a pain in the ass um we chip away at it at, you know at a moment when you might really really want it but what should require due process cat i mean being locked up in a jail should require maximal due process but should like being uncomfortable with woody allen require <laughs> due process you know like what about those gray zones well, I mean, Woody Allen is an interesting case because he received due process. Um, the allegations against him were investigated extensively by two different bodies at the time, and they, you know, concluded that there was no there there. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's an, an interesting example of people just being like, well, the due process didn't find the result that we would have preferred. And so we're just going to go ahead and still be really mad about this and still, you know, try to kind of rewrite this man's legacy so that when he dies, his obituary reads Woody Allen, alleged child molester, not Woody Allen director. Um, but aren't they stringing together any... a bunch of breadcrumbs there? Isn't that a little, I mean, you might be being a little bit um, cute with, with like that being the only allegation against him when he, again, is trailing behind him so many, and I, I mean, I absolutely love his movies and I'm a huge fan, but I do note that, that many of them involve extremely young women falling in love with old nebbishy men. And he did have a, this questionable relationship that evolved with Sun Yi. I mean, I guess it was questionable at the time. It's not questionable anymore because they've been married for decades and she's a grown woman. She's allowed to do what she wants. She clearly, clearly loves him to bits. Um, but, you know, I think people get their discomfort from the fact that regardless of whether or not the specific allegation about child molestation is true, there's an, there's an aura that would arouse a level of suspicion that doesn't rise to criminal conviction that nonetheless people feel justified in making them feel uneasy. Like, are they mm. unjustified in their unease? Um, I think they're unjustified in trying to extract 
penance from him for their unease. I mean, the thing about Soon Yi is that, as you noticed, they've been together for something like 30 years. And, uh, uh, you know, the the feminist um, take, I think, is to believe that woman when she says that nothing untoward was going on there and that she's really, really sick of people painting that relationship as though it was in any way non-consensual or in any way a bad thing for her. Um, you know, that that's where I land on that. But I, I'm also, um, as a writer of fiction, I really, really do not want to normalize the idea that we should be scrutinizing, uh, you know, the content of a director's films or a, a scriptwriter's screenplays or a novelist's books to find out what kind of person they're really like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Did you did you see recently, by the way, that a couple of novels have have changed? something that happened in them this had to do with with characters saying something about israel i think and now people people jumping on the authors as if the authors were articulating their own beliefs in the mouths of fictitious characters so rather than deal with the headache of being cancelled and having to justify what their fictitious fictional characters are saying they've changed the words yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that's where we land when you start saying that, you know, an author is responsible or, you know, or somehow like an insert um, for the problematic, insensitive, whatever things that a character says. I mean, that that entire story is pretty ludicrous and uh, it's depressing to me that that's becoming a norm. That sort of brings us to the other thing that I wanted to hear your thoughts on, which was one of the other great articles of yours that I loved when you were first coming to my attention, which was your uh, extrapolation of the young adult fiction uh, crisis, I suppose you might call it, <laughs> of... When was that? I, I wanted to say of 2019. It could have been... of 20, 2017. 2017. Yeah, I, and I was looking... I was early on the scene. <laughs> wow, you were. And, and this, I hadn't realised until I just opened our text messages to each other that I had forgotten that I interviewed about you about this for my Radio National show, what, two years ago or something, uh, to yeah. explain the, the YA drama. That I was doing so much at the time. that my, my apologies for it slipping my mind that that's what we were talking about. But can you re-articulate what happened there? Because this blending of identity with fiction, with reality, with bigotry, all kind of came together in a perfect storm. Yeah, this. I mean, it's interesting that the YA community is, as it's as is often the case, uh, a sort of an early warning sign for things that are coming down the cultural pike that eventually bleed into the broader culture. When you're going to have a moral panic over art, it frequently starts in stuff that's aimed at young people because people can be like, think of the children, you know. And just to clarify, and, YA is the industry jargon, is the publishing industry jargon for young adult novels. So things like Twilight and The Hunger Games mm -hmm. and stuff like that? Yep. Anything aimed at readers who are mm, like 12, 13 up through, you know, 19, 20. Um, the thing about YA, especially when it was in its like real peak heyday, was that a lot of adults read it too. 
So um, you could sort of push the boundaries of what was going to be included there. And I was a, a young adult novelist. Um, I published two books, one in 2012 and one in 2014. So I happened to be positioned in the community um, in a, a very good place to notice that things were starting to get a little weird. And um, what happened was that these campaigns started to percolate against books that were deemed problematic. That was the sort of the buzzword of the day, which, you know, meant that they didn't hew to the proper political values. And the evidence for the book being problematic was rarely all that straightforward. Often it was there's a bad character in this book who says bad things. Um, and there was a very effective machine in place spearheaded by a group of authors in that space who had a lot of influence, who had big followings on Twitter, who could really, if they chose, whip up um, a lot of anger against a book that they had decided to target. And there was frequently an element of competition there. It's kind of a cutthroat world. It's been contracting for a while, so it's not getting any better on this front. Um, and, you know, the the goal would be to just destroy these books, you know, to get them ideally pulled from publication, or if you couldn't do that, to force the writer to edit them and apologize. And if you couldn't do that, to um, torpedo the ratings of the book before it came out by getting people to go and like downvote it or give it a zero star review on Goodreads, you know, just for, you know, basically like, I haven't read this book, but I heard it's bad. I'll never read it. Zero stars. Um, and this had happened to a bunch of different titles, but the one that I decided to focus on because it was just an amazing saga was this book called The Black Witch by an author named Laurie Forrest. And, um, you know, I I observed the campaign against this book getting off the ground. You know, it, it got, um, got boosted by some of the people in the community who were capable of, of making a thing of a campaign like this. And uh, the it didn't ultimately succeed, but at the time that it was sort of at its peak, one of the really interesting things about it was that teen readers, you know, the, the, these vulnerable young people were being pressured in like really atrocious and really cruel ways by adults in the community um, to not even read a book themselves, you know, that had been deemed problematic. And the idea was that like, if you read it to see for yourself, then, then you're racist, you know, you're, you're just as bad. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, that was, that was a moment and that's probably the most viral thing I've ever written. Um, you know, <laughs> well, it four, started a whole, yeah, it, it helped to trigger a whole sort of uh, national reckoning in the publishing industry about this, ten this tendency, right, to, to demonize books on the basis of their being what you might just loosely call politically incorrect, even before they're published. And the funny thing about Black Witch, as I understood it, I haven't read the book, but I've I've read a bazillion analyses of it, is that it it was simply portraying individuals in this fantasy universe who were bigots. But weren't they the bad people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about it was that the, the main character starts out um, you know, with problematic views because she hasn't been awakened yet to the, you know, the reality of the world that she lives in. And then over the course of the first book, you know, she basically gets woke 
and um, she ultimately, sorry, spoiler alert, she joins the revolution at the end of the book. And then there are like three or four more books in the series where she's fighting with the rebellion against this bigoted society that she lives in. And it's a fictional um, society. This, there are wolfmen and stuff like that, right? I mean, these yeah, are the, oh, yeah, these are the yeah. other races who are being subjugated who on whose behalf yeah. she then takes up arms. <laughs> Yeah, fairies, wolfmen, selkies, which is like people who turn into seals. Um, you know, none of none of these. I want to be a selkie. You know, none of these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I love. Look, I have three-year-old twins, and they love the sea lion show at the Sydney Taronga Zoo. So I'm. I will become a seal when I grow up. You could delight your children by doing this. <laughs> That's right, yeah. exactly. Uh, and I've got a quote here that uh, from the Black Witch. So the the person who the bookstore employee and blogger who writes about young adult fiction who de- who started derailing this book's trajectory of positive critical acclaim uh, a couple of months before it was even published said the Black Witch is the most dangerous offensive book I've ever read. And she <laughs> cites the. You know, she, I hope she hasn't read Mein Kampf or something. Like she must not be very well read. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> but, yeah. There we go. We'll take that. Yeah, she's apparently only ever read Sunshine and uh, Puppy books. And she she quotes from it and says, from page one hundred sixty three, a character says, "The Kelps are not a pure race like us. They're more accepting of intermarriage, and because of this, they're hopelessly mixed." And then she editorializes. Yes, you just read that with your own two eyes. This is one of the times my jaw dropped in horror, and I had to walk away from this book. And I was like, well, who says that in the book? Like, it depends what character says it. Like, why are you assuming that this is something that the author believes? I'd be very surprised if the author believes that intermarriage is a way to taint pure races. Surely that's, that's something that's happening to a fictional, that's being said by a fictional character in a fictional fantasy universe full of wolfmen and seal people. Yeah, so that is a line, I believe, uttered by the main character before she, you know, before she has her political awakening. And, you know, the thing about it is that if you if you can't have main characters who are complex people who maybe start out in one place, even if that place is someplace we find distasteful, and then evolve over the course of a story to become better. Um, you're just going to have a lot of quite <laughs> boring books. I mean, to be honest, you're not even going to have any stories in like the traditional kind of Greek mythological sense of the word story. A story is basically someone has to grapple with something and then they have to overcome demons, preferably internal ones, in order to achieve some sort of enlightenment. Like, what are they Mm -hmm. struggling against if you can't articulate the darkness that is the opposition that they have to vanquish? Right. I mean, it's all quite muddied. Is this over now, the whole young adult thing? Are we back to sanity? Um, no. (laughs) I mean, as you you noted, all, all that's happened is that a lot of the... I don't really know how else to describe it except illiterate, but a lot of these illiterate readings of books are just kind of creeping into the mainstream where it's become something of a thing. And it's really, I think, a a power trip for the people who do it to, you know, find something in a book that you've decided you're offended by, you know, character said this, I'm repulsed, like, that's so offensive. And then brigade the author until they acknowledge you and apologize and promise to do better. Mm. I, there's a, a tweet about this whole YA fiasco, uh, by a blue check marked uh, journalist, and she says, 
I don't care if someone else said the book is problematic. I'm going to read it. And she has a, a, a graphic image of Batman smacking someone in the face with a big kind of old-fashioned Batman show smack thwack sort of thing as mm-hmm. if... I mean, this is this like chills me as like the grandson of Holocaust survivors when you know who lived during book burnings and stuff. The idea that you would casually demonize people who who want to seek out the original text itself in order to judge for themselves whether yeah, or not that it's... what was so egregious about that is that that was a sentiment being tweeted by an adult author in response to teenagers saying that they wanted to read the book to form their own opinion about it. She's a writer. She was. She herself was cancelled. (laughs) Later? After that? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. What happened to her? Oh, that's a long story. She turned into I'm a reluctant. seal and jumped in the sea and swam away. <laughs> I'm reluctant to talk about it because it's it's something that I I still have it kind of in my in the back of my mind to maybe eventually try to report on. Oh, go on. So, Just give us a hint. Um, okay, she was one of the parties named in the the Me Too reckoning that happened in YA where there was a post on the school library journal website that devolved into just this like morass in the comments of people wielding accusations, usually anonymously of sexual assault and harassment against all of these different authors. And one of them was this woman, Tristina Wright. I believe she was the only woman to get caught in this. And I suspect that this allegation was completely fabricated and made maliciously by somebody else in the community who had a grudge against her. Um, But yeah, you know, her book was unpublished. I believe she was dropped by her publisher and her agent and uh, she disappeared off of the internet. Wow. I don't want to talk about reaping what you sow, but uh, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a sensitive, I mean, you touch it, anyone can touch the hot stove here, can't they? And just get annihilated. It's funny that we started out talking about the cool guy and the way that the cool guy's performance of feminism is supposed to inoculate him from charges of sexism, but that actually frequently you'll find that those bros are the most sexist and misogynistic guys and that the traditionally masculine, uh, you know, superficially sexist guy has more chivalry than the cool bro feminist does. And I wonder whether or not, do you think that people who spend a lot of time presenting an image of ideological purity in the cancel culture wars tend to be harboring something else that they're hiding or is that a stretch? I don't know. I think about this a lot. I th- I think there's certainly this it's almost like a meme. You see people you see people say this a lot where they suggest that anybody who is quite outspoken in favor of things like free speech and due process is probably just trying to preempt, you know, their own cancellation because surely they have skeletons in the closet. And I've always thought that that rang extremely false because if you have skeletons in your closet, the last thing you would do is start speaking publicly in a way that you know is going to you know, incentivize a lot of very vengeful, angry people to go looking for them to try mm. and hurt you. Um, I think that what does actually happen more often is that people you know, get very hungry to identify somebody who's, you know, done, done a bad, you know, done a bad thing, um, or, you know, or said something problematic. 
as a way of averting attention from their own bad acts. I think that, you know, not necessarily that they've done anything, but they fear um, that they could be canceled. And so, you know, they misdirect. They say, hey, look at that guy over there. Look at that asshole. Like, he's bad. He did something bad. Let's get him. And, you know, the more you can deflect attention away from yourself and onto somebody else, the less people will pay attention to you and whatever you might have lurking in your past. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, the extent to which people are blind to the possibility of, of this trend coming back to bite them in the ass is what amazes me, that people are so confident in their own uh, uh, right, I suppose, to annihilate other people's reputations without thinking that they're, they're kicking up, they're stirring up a hornet's nest. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, not to wade into race here, but, but a little bit of the, the perils that I think of our, uh, that we face in our current moment in our conception of race, that there seems to be a movement which is encouraging us to not think about equality and colorblindness, to not think about our traditional liberal aspirations as being the sort of Martin Luther King light on the hill of like, we should just, you know, try to make race as irrelevant as possible and to, and try to elevate everybody according to their ability and their character and instead we should double down on thinking about ourselves as races and we should think about ourselves as ethnicities and we should strive not for equality but for complete equity so that there's an, a, a fairly precise representation of all different races and ethnicities and genders in all areas of public life and my primary worry about that is that once you start encouraging everybody to think about themselves as racial tribes, uh, things have not historically gone well when white people think about themselves as racial tribes. And <laughs> as a gay Jew, I don't want straight white people thinking about themselves as straight white people. I want them thinking about themselves as humans and have a humanistic approach to this. And that strikes me as the same kind of blindness that minorities would be pushing everybody to think about their races more at the same, you know, that there's a parallel between that and and cancel culture finger waggers encouraging everybody to pile on to people who have who have erred without realizing that if they create that climate of a whirlwind in which everybody is getting pilloried for the tiniest indiscretions, they too will at some point succumb to that. Yeah, I think that the problem too is that we are treating the ruination of people's lives and reputations like a spectator sport. Um, and there's this enormous impulse to punish. There's this enormous impulse to find targets and destroy them, um, and to extract apologies. But but that's just part of the show. You know, there's never any forgiveness on offer, which is a disturbing element of the culture that we live in right now. Um, one of the uh, one of my favorite podcasters, uh, the fifth column, Camille Foster, yeah. talks a lot about how you know we end up focusing a lot on individual cancellations and don't don't talk about the culture that gives rise to them. And I think that you know the this culture of delighting in the destruction of other people, delighting in their distress, that's that's really where things are becoming poisonous and toxic, and where hopefully you know eventually maybe I don't know we'll we'll address it and and go back from that what would that look like Kat you know 
is it's really simple. Just stop. Just everyone needs to stop. <laughs> yeah, but there's a collective action problem. This is what frustrates me. I mean, if we haven't been able to do anything about the climate crisis in the past 30 years that we've known about it, I worry about our ability to do something about this because the incentives are all aligned towards, in- well, notwithstanding the point that I just made about be, be careful what you sow because you're going to have to reap it as well. Uh, the incentives are all aligned for individuals to be as self-righteous and censorious as possible. But when everybody behaves that way, then collectively we all end up in a in a quagmire. But I don't see any disincentive for people who are who are gaining notoriety and a sense of self importance from being the uh, the most virtuous people online. I don't see any incentive for them to pull back. So okay, maybe so. Here's the alternate theory, um, and this kind of goes along with um, I, I don't know if you remember back in like 2010 uh, when smartphones were, you know, had just become ubiquitous and a lot of people were sending naked pictures of themselves around. (laughs) Um, I may have done a few of those myself. It's true. (laughs) I, me, me never, I would never, I would simply never take naked pictures of myself using a cell phone. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there was this sexting panic, especially as it, you know, as it applied to teenagers. It was like, Everybody was freaking out like teens are taking pictures of themselves in the nude and it's like, you know, it's so bad. And like the thing that occurred to me at the time was that we were going to reach, I don't know, like the event horizon where suddenly everybody had a naked picture of themselves floating around somewhere and like inevitably naked pictures of you were probably going to emerge online but it just wasn't going to be a big deal anymore because it you know it was something that could happen to everybody (laughs) your nana's your nana already had hers online as well yes yeah exactly yeah and it just became like a you know a rite of passage and maybe that'll be the thing too you know in the future everyone will be canceled for 15 minutes and then we'll just move on with our lives yeah the problem is there are always – yeah, I hope that's true. My only concern is that there are always things that are going to be worthy of cancellation. And if you believe in the, like, long arc of justice, then you hope that more and more things become grounds for cancellation. I mean – Do it, you? Well, not using a baseline, the current uh, cancel culture hysteria as it stands on – on Twitter and in public shaming mobs, but using the baseline of the actual kind of advancing vanguard of cultural norms that human beings in real life engage in. So the fact that in the 1980s you could still probably get away with slapping a female co-worker on the ass and saying, nice tits, like the fact that that is not good anymore, I think is good, right? So, I mean, you know, and gradually over time... We look back on our parents' and grandparents' generations and we go, oh, my God, I can't believe how retrograde they were. And presumably that's going to continue, but hopefully in ways that aren't trivial and motivated by grandstanding. Like I can see – I can sort of see new realms of taboos that will open up that I think will be probably good to open up. And I've been trying to sort of put myself in the – shoes of like my kids or grandkids and think like what are they going to look back on the same way that we look back on the casual racism of the 1950s and of course it'll probably be things that we're not focusing on at all because by definition the the big things that future generations will see as being blind spots are blind spots 
So I think Mm -hmm. maybe the way we treat animals, for example, uh, maybe climate. Like it's, I could imagine that in the twenty fifties, they'll they could look at movies of this era like Crazy Rich Asians or something like that, where people are getting on planes and where it's aspirational to be flying everywhere and to be really blingy and be like, I can't believe that there was no... Like, the people didn't clock what a calamity they were sort of seeding in the fact that there was no attention paid to the emissions that they were producing. Like, I don't know, I'm just guessing. Or, like, that people were eating banquets and there was never a question. Like, you never even see the question come up about whether or not the meat is from a tortured animal that was treated in ways that where the only consideration was getting each kilo of its flesh down to the cheapest possible price. Mm-hmm. Like, things like that, you know, like, I think could become more taboo. And I would sort of welcome that. And there will pr- presumably be future eras that are more enlightened than our own. So that's what I mean by I hope that one hopes that the 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 sphere of taboos increases, but I share yeah. your reluctance to to hope for a doubling down on the particular transgressions that we're currently obsessed by. I think that's Yeah, I think that that's the difference between saying, you know, I hope our norms evolve, you know, to to make us, you know, in the direction of justice, in the direction of kindness and saying I hope more things become cancelable offenses because right, right, I mean, yeah. certainly, you know, I really don't want um, 20 years down the line to be in front of a tribunal of like teenagers wearing pointy hats yelling at me over a picture of me eating a hamburger from like 2014. Like they're dragging me away and I'm like, it was a different time. (laughs) (laughs) It was always wrong. Which is what you're supposed to also say. Like even the Disney, I can't, I was logged in cat the other day to, uh, to Disney and I couldn't find the jungle book, which is one of my son's favorite movies, the old cartoon. I could Mm -hmm. only find the jungle book two. And I realized that I was logged in under the kids. We have two logins. There's the grown-up and the kids. And the, and the kids, uh, one doesn't show offensive content. And so the Jungle Book doesn't show up. Uh-huh. So I had to log out and log in as an adult to get access to the Jungle Book because it contains colonialist imagery or something. And there's a yeah. warning. You know, you have to, you have to sit through a five-second warning saying the depictions of traditional cultures. Or so. I don't know. It's not even, I mean, they're animals. It's, I don't even know. I don't quite understand it, but it says like the depictions are wrong now and always have been wrong. So when mm-hmm. you're hauled before the teenagers in pointy hats for your hamburger, it won't be an excuse to say it was okay back then. It was always wrong, Kat. Right, right. I mean, this reminds me of um, a spat that I got in on, on Twitter, of course, when there was a... There was a book review of like a biography of, um, I believe, P.T. Barnum that wanted to rake him over the coals because he wasn't very nice to his wife. (laughs) And I was like, you know, all of these all of these men who like if they saw your 